Today I'll be reading from Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, which is not the verse in the bulletin, but I did check with Neil, so I'm pretty sure that's the right one. So, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, I'll be reading from the New King James Version. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and bought a certain part, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourselves? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Appreciate so much him reading the scripture for us again this week. We didn't fire him after the debacle last week. I wasn't fired after the debacle last week. I don't know who was to blame, but uh, it's usually not me. It's so I'm just, he's the fall guy here. Um, so we're going to come to that passage in just a second. But before we, we do that, um, there are some other things I want us to touch on. In 1904, there was a fellow by the name of William Borden, and William Borden was, um, uh, he was an heir of the Borden Dairy uh, Farm, if you're familiar with that at all, uh, historically. And uh, when he graduated from school in Chicago, his family sent him on a worldwide excursion. He was able just to travel the world. Now, how many of you would like a senior trip like that or graduation trip like that? Now you just go and you... You just travel the world. It sounds uh, pretty exciting to me. Some of you would rather not. You'd rather just go to Gatlinburg. And Gatlinburg's fun too, but uh, I think I'd rather have the excursion around the world. Well, he could do that because he uh, was quite wealthy. Imagine being a millionaire in 1904 uh, after you graduate from high school. Well, that was the case with William. And as he was going about around the world, he was impressed by the people that he came in contact with, in particular, the folks that were struggling. And he was just overwhelmed from a heart of empathy. And he said, you know, I, I want to help people. I, that's, that's what I want to do, is, is I want to help people. And so he wrote home to his family, and he said that I'm going to prepare myself to be a minister. And, and that's, what he, that's what he did. So he took out his Bible, and in his Bible, he, he, opened, he opened it up, and he, and he wrote down this. He said, no reserves. I don't know if he was uh, making reference to the fact that he, uh, he spent all of his money in his excursion, and he had no reserves, or if the family was going to pull back the resources, and he was on his own. I don't know what he meant by that, but he wrote in his Bible, no reserves. Over the course of time, he started to get these job offers coming his way. One job offer that he received was from Yale University, and he was uh, wanted by the university to uh, hold a rather prestigious position that paid a lot of money, and he declined the invitation. And so he takes his Bible out, and once again, he, he writes in it, and underneath the phrase no reserves he writes the word no the words no retreat and so he was not going to to give up on his dream and on his passion to to help people as a minister and so he continued in that effort and in fact he went to Princeton seminary and he studied in, in greater preparation 
as uh, toward his efforts to become uh, a minister. He wanted to end up in China, and in China, he wanted to work with a specific religious population there. He wanted to work in uh, reaching a Muslim population. But on his way, he stopped off in Egypt for more training, and while he was in Egypt, he uh, developed um, cerebral meningitis, and ultimately he died. And there were some folks that said, my, what a waste. But before he died, he opened up his Bible and he wrote under no reserves and no retreat. He said, no regrets. You and I will often have regrets in life won't we? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, and maybe we have to go into that private closet where nobody is around, and nobody can hear us uh, talk out loud or think out loud, and, uh, but if we're honest with ourselves, we will have some regrets. In talking about regrets, there have been some folks a lot smarter than I who have gone out and, and have uh, done some surveys, and, and in those surveys, they've said, Okay, these are the top regrets that people have. Uh, number one, the top regret is um, a lack of, of courage to do the unthinkable. You know, some of the adventure kind of stuff. Another regret is not being more assertive. Another regret that one came up with is not being more studious or not spending more time with their studies. It's interesting that the uh, researcher who came up with that happened to be a professor, and so uh, no wonder that he came up with that one among his participants. But regrets, I suspect if we just think about it, there are probably some relational regrets that we have. Maybe it goes back to our youth and we think, man, if I, if I just had had the confidence and courage to ask that young lady out on a date. Or maybe uh, if I just had that courage, ladies, to have accepted that invitation by the young man to go out on that date. Or maybe, maybe it's in the home and, and it's something that you, as a young person, said to your mom or to your dad and and you have a regret about that. I can still, it haunts me like it was yesterday, something that I said to my mom that I, I'll never be able to, I'll never be able to fix it with her because she's, she's gone. I know she probably forgave me as soon as it happened, but, um, but I have that regret as a young person. Uh, perhaps it is as a parent, and we think about the raising of our kids and things that we've, we've said or done along the way, and, and we have regrets. Maybe it's uh, relational from a standpoint with a husband or with a wife, and we have some regrets there and something that we've said or done. Maybe it's a, an academic regret. Maybe we, we wish that we could go back 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago and complete our high school education or complete our college education. Maybe it's a professional regret. Maybe, maybe we wish that we hadn't have accepted that position or maybe we wish that we had accepted this position and, and made that, that move or maybe it's a regret that we didn't pursue this particular line of work or, or maybe it's a regret that we look back and we say you know i i did this professionally my whole life and and it, and it was fine it was all well and good but 
there, there's something else that I had a passion for and I just didn't do that. And so now in our advanced years, we look back and we have some professional regrets. We all have regrets. It doesn't matter who we are, we have something in our life that we probably regret. When we think about life from a, a spiritual standpoint, however, there are things that we do along the way or maybe we, left, uh, we leave undone, maybe some things that we say, maybe some things that we left, leave unsaid, that if we could go back in time, we would correct that because now we have some regrets. And I thought it would be of interest to us to go into God's Word and look at some individuals that, that did some things that they regretted. And if we could go to the very first book of the Bible and look at Genesis chapter 2, we see the first example of folks that had to live with some regret. In Genesis chapter 2, God creates Adam and he creates Eve. He creates Eve from uh, Adam's uh, rib from his side, verse 21. In verse 23, Adam is now excited because he has a wife, and he says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she's taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And then you come to chapter 3. In chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they have everything. I mean, really, they, they have one another. They have an incredible environment in which to live. They have a God who is pictured as walking through the garden with Adam and Eve. I mean, it is an absolute amazing time in their lives, but it didn't take long for them to throw a wrench into that. You remember in Genesis chapter 2 that God had told Adam and Eve that they could eat of every tree in the garden except for the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he said that the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. In chapter 3, um, there's another individual that comes on the scene, and it is this serpent. And the serpent says unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, but God knows that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes are going to be opened, and you'll be as gods, little g gods, knowing good and evil. And it was true, their eyes would be opened, and they would know the difference between good and evil. And when the woman saw, when Eve saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and did eat, and gave also to her husband, with her and he did eat the first sin recorded for us and Adam and Eve were guilty and now they have an eternity for which to regret that decision and if you think about it in first Timothy chapter 2 all the way into the New Testament hundreds thousands of years later what happens is Eve's name is synonymous with committing the first sin in history Regret. Look a little further. Go to, to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. 
In Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 1, it, it came to pass that men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God, and if you were here Sunday night, we talked a little bit about that, the expression sons of God, probably a reference to the line of Seth here, not a reference to uh, angelic hosts, but the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose and the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he also is flesh yet his day shall be a hundred and twenty years this is a reference to how much longer the world was going to, to stand before the flood and then it says there were giants in the earth in those days and and after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of the men that they bear children to them the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And I've often said, and you've heard me say, that not only were they, they doing wicked things, but they were devising what wicked thing can we come up with next. That is the condition of the world at this time. There's always been wickedness, even going back to the Garden of Eden, we saw wickedness, but this was a unique stage in the history of man. It wasn't just engaging in wickedness, but it was constantly devising what wicked thing can we come up with to do next. And so God says, I'm not going to allow this world to stand. And ultimately, the Bible says that he prepared Noah and his family to put an ark together, to build an ark, to save man from the flood. Now, it says in verse number 13, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And he starts to build the ark. And so for a century, Adam or Noah is in process of constructing this ark in preparation for this flood, but he's preaching. He's preaching. And he's preaching the gospel, the good news, really, of salvation, salvation from this flood, hope for mankind. And yet, he was rejected. He was rejected over and over and over again. And we know that to be true because as you go a little further in Genesis 6 and 7 and 8, there were only, let's see, Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their wives who were saved on the ark. Now, I don't know, and I'm, I'm certainly not re recommending the film, but I don't know if you saw the movie Noah that came out a few years ago and that uh, took um, a lot of liberty, shall we say. That's probably putting it very nicely about the, the flood event as recorded for us in Scripture. But, but I remember something in the film when though the, the ark door was closed, you could hear the sounds of the people on the outside that were just begging for Noah to let them in. And I wonder how real that was. I suspect, I mean, this is just me speaking from my own thoughts. I, I suspect that it was similar. 
I, I suspect that as that rain was coming down and as the water began to rise and, and people began to realize Noah was not this crazy old man uh, or young man, depending on your perspective, but he was not this crazy man that we thought he was building this ark. They hadn't seen rain before, if we understand our Bible. They hadn't seen it before and all of a sudden here is the rain and the rain is descending, the flood uh, rising. He's not crazy, and so perhaps they were banging on this ark and, and, and begging Noah to, to let them in. And so now they are living with regret. And you look in Genesis chapter 7, in verse number 11, it says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And just as a sidebar, it was 40 days and 40 nights of rain, not in totality. It was 40 days and 40 nights of rain that was required to lift the ark off of the earth. And so in the process of time, in the selfsame day, Noah enters, Shem enters, Ham enters, Japheth, the sons of Noah, Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They and every beast after his kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind and every fowl after his kind and every bird of every sort. And they went in uh, unto Noah into the ark two and two of all flesh wherein the breath of life was. And I can't help but wonder if there were more daddies like Noah what would the world be like today what would the events of that moment of that time have been like if there had been more daddies like Noah I wonder how Noah's wife felt during the process of time as Noah was out preaching and he was devoting his attention to all of these people that were calling him a fool crazy and yet he continued to preach. I wonder how his wife must have felt, and not only his devoting his time and his attention to that, but then in preparation of building this ark. Don't, don't you have time for me? Can't you spend some time? You're, you're so busy preaching. You're so busy working on the ark. I wonder about his kids. I wonder if Noah had to challenge the thinking of his kids and the kids are saying, what in the world are you doing, Dad? You're, you're, you're building this boat? What, what is that even needed for? And obviously, the Bible tells us that Noah's sons helped him in that process, but I wonder if they really grasped it, if they really got it. I'm just speaking illustratively here. I wonder, I wonder what it would have been like if there had been more folks, more men in particular, more husbands, more daddies like Noah, how things might have changed. But what we know is their regrets going into eternity as a result of a failure to honor God. We go a little further in Genesis and we look at Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12 and here's Abram and Abram is commissioned by God to go to Ur and the Bible tells us that 
in verse chapter 13, verse 1, that Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel and the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Hai, unto the place of the altar which he made there at the first. And there Abram called on the, same, uh, on the name of the Lord. And then notice it says, And Lot also, which went with Abram, this is Abram's nephew, had his flocks and his herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And then it says, and there was a strife, not between Abram and Lot, but between the herdmen of Abram and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled in the land. And Abram said unto Lot, let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. And, and it seems to be from the text that while it started out as strife between the herdmen, it now has become strife between Abram and Lot. And as a result of the strife, what happens? Abram says, I mean, look at all that we have. Just, you choose. You choose which direction that, that you want to go. And, and there you take your herdmen. There you take your cattle. And, and wherever you go, I will go in the opposite direction. And, and you'll be fine, and I'll be fine. And, and we're brethren. We'll get along. And, and so that's what he says. And, and then it says in verse number 10, Lot lifts up his eyes, and behold, all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zor. And Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves, the one from the other. And Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. And we know, of course, what happened as a result of his pitching his tent towards Sodom, Genesis chapters 19 and 20. And as a result of his pitching his tent towards Sodom, Lot lost, in essence, he lost his family. Yes, he lost his, his bride because of her disobedience and turning back, but he lost his kids too. I can't help but, but wonder... Was there some regret in the mind of Abram when he said, Lot, you just pitch your tent any direction you'd like. I'll take the opposite. I wonder if there, there was some regrets on Abram's back. Maybe Abram thought, maybe we could have figured something out. Maybe, maybe we could have worked together and, 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 and my herdmen and your herdmen and our cattle, maybe we could have sorted this out and we could have just... Uh, I wonder if there was some regret on his part. There must have been some regret on Lot's part after he made that decision and he saw the, the, the consequences of his decision to pitch his tent towards Sodom. Look over in Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. Not only was there regret, no doubt, for Adam and Eve and regret for... Uh, the people during Noah's day, regret for Abram and Lot. But you think about Israel. Israel, as they had left Egypt, Egyptian bondage, and they were making their, their way toward the promised land, the land of Canaan. In uh, Numbers chapter 13, the, the spies had gone into the land, and they, they had 
had scoped it out, and, and they came back and they said, you know what? Uh, there's a lot to be afraid over there. Uh, there. There are giants in the land. And they brought this fear back, and Israel listened to the fear rather than listening to the strength of God. And as a result of that, they're going to have something to regret. In verse number 33 it says, And there we saw giants, the sons of Anak, which come out of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in the sight. Not God's sight, but in their sight they were grasshoppers. Chapter 14, And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night and all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron the whole congregation said unto them would God that we had died in the land of Egypt or would God we had died in this wilderness and wherefore hath the Lord brought us into the land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey were it not better for us to return into Egypt and they said one to another let us make a captain let us return to Egypt and the Bible tells us that as a result of their murmuring and their complaining, rather than trusting in the God of the universe, instead of going and being able to occupy the land of Canaan, they had to wander around the wilderness for 40 years. Not a single one of those belly acres were going to enter into the land of Canaan. It probably says something to us about how we shouldn't complain so much, right? Because maybe there are consequences that could come our way if we don't trust in God and we choose to complain. That was certainly the case with them. And so a generation dies out. They had something to regret. I want us to look at one more. Owen did have the scripture right. Look, look at Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Of course, a little bit of background in chapter 4, the church, uh, one of the great things about the church in the first century, and has always been great about the church, is when a need is known, an effort is put forth to try to meet that need. And in Acts chapter 2, as the church was just established, the Bible tells us that, that God's people, you know, if, if there was a need among his people, they would sell their possessions and they would take those uh, funds from the possessions that they sold to meet the needs of the people. And in chapter 4, it says um, that, uh, verse number 31, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken, where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them believed they were of one heart, of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with Great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the great grace upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and uh, brought the prices of the things that were sold, and they laid them at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had needed. And Joseph, who was also called Barnabas, meaning uh, son of consolation, he was a Levite of the country of Cyprus, it says... He had land, he sold it, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Sounds like a pretty good guy. Then we come to chapter 5. Ananias and his wife Sapphira. I wonder if Ananias and Sapphira had gotten wind of, of Barnabas and what he had done. I wonder if they had gotten an idea of the, the, the multitude of praise and thanksgiving that probably went 
in the direction of Barnabas for his charity, and they, they said, you know what, we, we can do something like that. We, we can be like Barnabas. And so it says that they sold a possession, but they kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And what seems to be the case here is that they misrepresented what they had did in the service of God for God's people. It's kind of like this. It's, it's like selling a piece of property. And whereas Barnabas would have taken uh, the principal and the equity from the property to give toward helping the people of God, Ananias and Sapphira only took the, uh, the equity from the property and gave that to uh, take care of the Christians, but they kept the principal back for themselves. So they represented as if they had given it all, but they had only given a portion. And as a consequence, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. You read a little bit further, and the same thing happened to Sapphira. And now Ananias and Sapphira have an eternity to regret lying to the people of God, lying to God, lying to the Holy Spirit. And so we could continue doing this. We could look at example after example of folks that, that regretted their decisions and have an eternity for which to regret their decisions. But likewise, when we go to Scripture, we read about people who did things that they regret. And yet, they don't have an eternity to regret those decisions. For instance, look at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Here is uh, David. David, of course... He uh, lusts after Uriah, the Hittite's bride, and uh, he calls for her uh, to come to him, Bathsheba, and he lies with her, and Bathsheba ends up becoming pregnant from this sexual relationship. And he doesn't want to get caught, and, and uh, he doesn't want folks to think that he is the David is the father of Bathsheba's child, and so he calls for Uriah to come home for battle. Uriah had been out fighting the war for David. And so he calls Uriah to come home, and he says, Uriah, man, you've, you've fought long and hard, and just take a break and, and go, go be with your wife. And Uriah was a man of honor. He wasn't going to do that. And so what David thought he could do is, well, I'll just get Uriah drunk. If I get Uriah drunk, then I can send him home, and he'll lie with his wife. That didn't work either. And so he sends Uriah back into the battle, but not just back into the battle, he sends him to the forefront of the battle and he murders Uriah by proxy. And so now David takes Bathsheba as his bride. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, after Uriah is now dead, he has a conversation with his good friend Nathan. 
And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he began, or he, he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, and the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. And it's like this ewe lamb was a pet which he had bought and, church, and nourished up, and it, it grew up together with him and with his children, and did eat of the, his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was uh, unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man and spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb, his pet, and dressed it for the man that was to come to him. And and David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, this man that has done this thing, has taken this guy's pet, he's going to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah, and if it had been too little, I would have moreover have given unto thee such and such things. I would have given you more. But you took, I'm paraphrasing now, you took another man's wife. He had something for which to regret. But as you go a little further in the reading, Verse number 16 says that now David has besought God. He specifically besought God for the child that was born, who has now fallen ill. The Bible tells us, and as you continue to read here in verse 21, Then said the servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child, now the child that has, is, is, is to die and, and dies. He says... Why do you weep for the child? While it was alive, but when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said this, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now is he dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, and he shall not return to me. In other words, he's identifying the fact that through this entire process, yes, he sinned, but he was remorseful for that sin. He repented of that sin. And now he had hope to see this child again one day. It's no wonder that later Jesus would say of David, he's a man after my own heart. Let me give you just one more. Look at Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We know of the apostles of, of Jesus... And we know in um, Matthew chapter 26 when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and the, uh, the disciples were there with him, Peter being one of those, when the soldiers had come to Jesus and Judas had been the one to identify Jesus in the midst of these people, uh, that Peter pulls his sword and, and he cuts off a, a soldier by the name of Malchus, cuts off his ear. And Jesus says in verse 52 of chapter 26, Put up again your sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. And uh, Jesus is taken away, and he goes through the trials, and then, of course, he would be crucified. Now, while this was going on, this process of Jesus being taken away and going through these trials, the Bible says in, in, in the latter part of chapter 26, 
in verse 69, Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came to him saying, Thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee, right? He said, no. He denied before them all saying, I, I know not what thou sayest. I wasn't with this Jesus of Galilee. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them that were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied, this time with an oath. I swear, I wasn't, I wasn't with Jesus. I don't even know the man. Verse 72. And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thy speech bereath thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crowed. Jesus had told Peter that you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. And what did Peter say? No way. I'm not going to deny you. I'm your main man. I'm Peter. I, I'm not going to do it. And he did. And the Bible tells us in verse 75 that he goes out and he weeps bitterly. But that wasn't the end of Peter's story. You see, he had something to regret. He denied the Lord three times. But he didn't live there. He repented. And as a result of his change of mind, he became an incredible gospel preacher. In fact, he preached the first gospel sermon following the resurrection of Jesus Christ that at least, the text says, 3,000 souls accepted and were baptized. Here's what I'm saying. There are things in our life that we may say or we may leave unsaid, that we may do or we may, may leave undone, that are things that needed to be addressed, but we didn't do it, and so we may regret it. If there are things of, of, a, of a spiritual and eternal nature, those things need to be taken care of. Because if they're not, just as was discussed briefly in Bible class this morning, if they are not, we will have an eternity for which to regret them. But, despite what those things are of an eternal nature, of a spiritual nature, despite how wicked they may be, if I repent and if I ask for God's pardon, God will forgive and He will remember those things no more. And I will never once have to think about them in eternity. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. And you know right now, I've got a lot of stuff in my past that I regret. I'm right with you. A lot of stuff in the past. But you know what? Here's the thing about becoming a Christian. The Bible says that we've got to repent to become a Christian. We've got to confess our faith in Jesus to become a Christian. But it's when we're baptized in water that we contact the blood of Christ. Galatians 3.27 It's when we're baptized in water that every one of those sins that we are regretting are washed away. Acts 2 and verse 38. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18-21 through 21, 
in the first part of that, we're reading about a uh, we're reading about Israel, who no doubt well now, of course, living in eternity, regretting their decision. But we don't have to live in regret because verse 21 says, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It's not taking a bath. But it's the answer of a good conscience toward God. Meaning we don't have to live with regret when we become a Christian. Do you need to do that? Do you need to become a child of God through penitent faith and baptism? Get rid of the regrets of the past. Live forward for, for a brighter tomorrow. And do it starting right now. Together we now stand and as we sing.